The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. That's Sunday, September 29th. Uh, three of our missionaries who are overseas right now, uh, that's, that's Aaron, that's Michaela, and that's Luke in Southeast Asia. They are going to be here. So you mark your calendar for sa- Sunday, September 29th during Sunday school, the 9 o'clock hour, uh, small group time. We're going to hear from them. So uh, that's really exciting. It's really encouraging. And uh, Aaron has grown a beard. He looks like he's 27 now instead of 22. But, uh, and Luke and Michaela are still there as well. Would you pray for them? That's, that's very exciting for us as they come. But uh, they're coming back for a wedding. So just so you know, many of you know them and remember them and support them. So it's good to see uh, that opportunity for them to come back. Well, as you turn to Mark chapter 14, it's good to see you as well. And as we start today, we are going to be looking at a short passage of Scripture. If you opened your Bible, you've probably seen, well, Darren, you're only doing half of the, the section according to my Bible. That's true. Uh, I wanted to make this two sermons in one, but I think the first four verses here are so loaded that God commands and God provides. Well, on a day long time ago, this man, Genghis Khan, does anyone ever remember this guy? Uh, Genghis Khan, there's, there's a restaurant named after him somewhere, I think. But the legend says that Genghis Khan, who's the Mongol king of the 13th century, was out hunting on a hot summer day, and he was parched with thir- thirst, and his, his hawk was there with him, his trusted hawk. And so uh, as he was parched with thirst, the king sought out a source for a cool drink. And at last he saw some water dripping from the top of a cliff. And it kept dripping and dripping. And he took his silver cup and he put it out there. And he went to take a drink. And his hawk came and knocked it out of his hands. And he said, oh, okay, that's fine. He's thirsty too. He wants some water. So he puts the cup out again. He gets the water, gets ready to take a drink. The hawk comes down and knocks it out of his hands once again. And he puts it to his lips for the third time after doing it. And wouldn't you know what the hawk did again? It knocked it out of his hands. So at this point, he's like this picture. He's as mad at the hawk. He draws his sword. He collects the water again. He waits for the hawk to come inside, and he kills his trusted hawk. But before he could take a drink, he wanted to go up and see the source of the water. And as he got up to the very top of the water, he noticed that a poisonous, venomous snake of the desert had died in the pool of water. And that water had dripped with that poison into that cup. And that hawk, his trusted hawk, the one that he had built his life around, had been slain taking care of the very friend that he thought was not his friend. Think about that for just a second. Think about how much, how much sometimes the Lord spoils our personal plans. But like Genghis Khan, we thank him for treating us as an enemy sometimes when in truth he's actually acting as our best friend. Is that not true in our lives? God, why did this happen? God, you have no idea what is happening in my life. How dare you take that away from me? God, do you know how much fun I was doing with this? Do you know how much great stuff can come out of that? And our Father sees all from His heavenly throne, and often, like that hawk, sees things that we do not see, but often are the best for us not to go through. Do you see that connection? And friends, this morning, I want to remind you how sovereign our God is. God is not a hawk. 
God is the sovereign God, but that story just struck me so much that from our limited human eyes, we often think we know what's going on. And this is exactly what Joseph faced, wasn't it? Genesis 50, 20, he said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And yet Joseph went through prison. He was falsely accused of rape, all these things. But the one principle we take out of this is that God is always previous. God is never reactionary. God is never trying to figure things out. Brother, thank you for leading us in the psalm that he's the everlasting God. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't ever do that. And God is always catching up to us. What? No, he's not. We're always trying to catch up to God, aren't we? But friends, if we know the sovereign God, He's an eternal sovereign one, nothing happens on earth that is not under His sovereign hand. And as these disciples get ready to celebrate the Passover with their Savior, they are getting ready to go into some uncharted territory. Because the disciples are walking into an area where they have no idea what's going to happen. They know that Jesus has told them that he's going to die. They know that the chief priest and the Sadducees are ready to nake him out anytime they can, and yet they have questions. They have lots of questions. They have lots of problems, and they have lots of places they have to go. So what do we do with this? How do we handle this? Where do we go with this? Well, I want to remind you this morning that we are to take care, and this is the big idea as Amy puts this up. But our Savior sits in sovereign, active control over everything that would either confuse, overwhelm, disappoint, or disturb, or even surprise us. And friends, that's great news, because sometimes we cannot see the forest for the trees, or the windshield wiper for the road ahead of us, amen, or your basement for the water in your basement, or whatever you have. But God is sovereign. He knows all things. And what I want to remind you this morning, I pray this, this sermon is very encouraging to you because God tells us that He knows all things. And because He knows all things, we can trust Him. There's nothing to be fearful of. And if it were possible for me to change the plans of God, I could never do it because He Himself is sovereign. And we have so many questions and so many troubles in our life. But this one thing is clear. We are to fear God and trust Him and do good in the land. So three things this morning, just straight out of the text. But our God is sovereign over three things. He's sovereign over our questions. He's sovereign over our quandaries. And He's sovereign over our quests. And yes, for the fifth straight row, guys, we got three words that start with the same letter. Amen? Maybe that doesn't excite you, but it excites all the English people in this world today. But here we see the sovereign plan of God. These disciples, confused as they are, not sure what's going to happen, knowing something big's about to happen, yet Jesus shows once again He is God Himself. He's in control. He's working the details out, not only for our good, but for His glory through His death. And how completely in control He is. Because if we would have walked into Jerusalem on the Thursday before the Friday Jesus died, it would have been chaos. People everywhere, animals everywhere, the smell, the stench, the noise. If you're a parent, you're trying to keep one hand on one kid and one hand on the other and still trying to make it through the street. It's crazy chaos. Yet in the mind and the heart of God, there was precision by the events woven by Him as a larger picture of His plans. And now on the greatest day of Israel's history, unleavened bread, the Passover, the meal, the remembrance of God's protection in Israel for when they were in Egypt, this couldn't have been done anywhere else except here. If you're able to stand this morning in honor of God's word, why don't you read with me verses 12 to 16. 
the half part of a section, but I think one that will remind us who our God is. And on a rainy day, we need this good reminder, guys, because He is sovereign. He is in control in your life, our church's life, your families, whatever you may have. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And verse 15, he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. Don't you love that? I love that phrase. If you're an underliner, and I'll mention this later, just as he told them. Guys, our God's word never fails. Just as he tells us, he is coming again. He is awesome, and he is in control. Let's pray as we start this morning. Fathers, we come before you, Lord. It has been a, uh, Lord, it's been a gray, dreary last couple days. Even with peaks of sun yesterday, Lord, we're tired. Some of us, we, it's just, it's just, uh, it's one of those days, Lord. We want to experience summer, but it's, it's flooded out to some degree. Father, whatever we bring in here, whether it's circumstantial weather, whether it's things in our lives, whether it's our health, whether it's our family, whether it's whatever it is, Father, we know that you know that you have it all under control. Father, if we have sinned, we ask forgiveness, Father. That's, that's on us. But we thank you that when we repent of that sin, Father, you are faithful and just to forgive us from all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we pray for our church, Father, that as we look at this passage, we see application for our church as well as we try to reach this neighborhood with the gospel in these days. Father, we thank you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Guys, you may be seated. Thank you so much. Well, as we enter this Thursday of Jesus' last week, we've been in the last week of his life for a couple months now as we've been going through what we knew as the triumphal entry, question Tuesday, and he on Wednesday told about the last days, and now the Thursday before his last day on earth, as, as uh, before his crucifixion, Jesus celebrates the Passover. You see that in verse uh, 1, or verse 12 there, that Jesus is sovereign over our questions. And Mark writes on there, he says, On the first day, and this would be Thursday, they were celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was an eight-day celebration. Hey, we get cookies and coffee at 4 o'clock today. We should extend this until next Monday at this rate. But the lambs were killed at midnight, and the lamb was roasted and eaten by the family. And how perfect and apropos this was that the Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world, that he would be fulfilling this on the very night before his death. And the disciples, knowing this, they asked the question, well, well, Jesus, where do you want us to go? Because let's be honest, there is probably 2.5 million people. If you can imagine Kansas City proper, not Liberty, Gladstone, Clay Como, North Kansas City, Randolph, whatever else, just Kansas City. You can imagine the metro filing into downtown south of the river, trying to find a lamb to roast, a place to eat it at, and a place to sleep safely. Well, we know our convention center is not that great to host a lot of people. We would be out to pasture at that point. So what we know is this place is busy. It's so busy. And they ask the obvious question, where do you want us to go? Where are we to go? But just because Jesus was out of town didn't mean he didn't want to follow the Scripture. He, he was required to as a Jew, and so he did. 
And this implies, first off, that they didn't have a place. They didn't have a place in the city large enough, easy to find, that they could go to. Remember, they've been in Bethany. They've been two miles outside the city in the former verses at the house of Simon the leper. And now it also tells us that that they know, he knows, that nothing catches him off guard. And he always has a solution, so they go to Christ for the answer. And as 2,000 years on, we think, finally, you guys are actually asking him the right questions. And so, guys, I want us to remember this morning, and Amy will put this up, we need to be cautioned against unreservedly putting God's name of approval on our plans, our ideas, or our opinions, our opinions. We must ask the question, Jesus, where do you want me to go in life? Jesus, I'm retired. Jesus, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Jesus, I'm, I, I'm working. But what do you want me to do in the places you have put me? What shall we do for your name, Lord? And this should be our daily prayer. Not for him to approve our plans, but the other way. We are to look to Christ. And that was their question. God, what do, Jesus, what do you want us to do? And church, can we extend that to us? This church should never be about what the pastor wants to do, what a select committee wants to do, what, what a certain group of deacons want to do. It is about what God is calling us as a church to do. And do you know what that is? It's to go and preach the gospel to every creature in every nation. It's to disciple. It's to love God and love others. It's to do those basic things. And for one church, that may look a little bit different. And for our church, that may be a little bit different. But we stay faithful to the call and ask the question, God, what is it you want us to do? And also, isn't it great the faith that they show here? I mean, think about this, guys. This is a really big thing. I mean, at times, the disciples are over here talking about themselves, and Jesus comes up and says, guys, I know you're talking about me. You're talking about us. Why don't you just ask the question? But now they have the faith to step up to the plate and say, where do you want us to go? Because they're ready. They know something's coming down. And that's the second thing I want you to catch in this very short first point, is that real faith does ask questions. It really does. Real faith asks questions, and it's okay to do that. Amy will put this up. We see this in Genesis 15. Uh, but faith is open to accept God's answer and God's uh, call and discover it's better than expected. You know, we always joke, don't we? Well, don't pray for patience because God is going to send you things that make you not patient. You ever, you ever joked about that before? Or don't pray to be a missionary. God's going to send you to Greenland with the Eskimos, man, and the penguins. Be careful how you pray. And we talk about that all the time. But here you see, in the midst of their questions, real faith does ask questions. But real faith also says, okay, Lord, I don't understand it all. You're sovereign. I'm going to go forward anyway. Guys, and sometimes that's how it works in the church as well. I wish we had a 10-year plan where we could say, you know, God's going to do this in year one. God's going to do this in year six. And God's going to do this in year 10. And we just sit back and, woo, let it be autopilot. Let's go. That would be so nice. Wouldn't that be great for your workplace if you showed up on Monday morning and you said, you know what, I'm going to hit that easy button, boop, and everything just worked the way you want it to work, and the people answered you the way they should answer you, and you answered your boss the way you should answer your boss, and you go home and you give your wife and your kids a big hug, woo, life is great because I hit that easy button. You know what, that never worked even if you slept in a Holiday Inn 10 years ago when that campaign was out, and it is so easy that a caveman can't do it or something like that. But here's what we know. Life is hard. There are real questions that you have. But real faith is open to accept God's answer and discover it's better than accepted. You have a big decision before you, big question of God, you pray about it. 
you pray about it by yourself, you pray about it with your spouse if applicable, your family, and you take it to your church family if it's necessary as well. You seek godly counsel. You don't Google the question, hey God, should I go here or go there? That Google does not solve everything, guys. But secondly, you study the Word of God, and you say, God, is there anything in your Word that violates what I'm about to do? And if there is, please stop me. But Lord, always I want to seek your direction in my questions. That's number one, God is sovereign over. And here's the big one. Secondly, notice they, God is sovereign over their quandaries. Because they come with real faith, and they come to Jesus, and they say, hey, where should we do the Passover? And then Jesus gets ready, and we've read it already. He gives them a big list of things, which if you're a detail person, you love this, but it scares you half to death. Because the things that Jesus points out that you're to go and do and look for, it's kind of like a mystery novel. Like you find a sign over here, and then you get your decoder ring out over here, and then you figure the secret puzzle out over here, and somehow it pieces all together. And that's the quandary they're facing, because the real faith asks the real question, but now Jesus gives them a real answer, but he points it out in a way that's probably very unusual. It is unusual to them. So notice verses 13 to 15. I want to read this to you again. It says, and look at your Bible, your tablet, whatever you got, and it says, and, and he sent two of his disciples. Those disciples are Matthew. Matthew says these are Peter and John. And it says, go into the city. Now, if I'm, if I'm a Jew, if I'm, if I'm Peter and John right now, I'm thinking, go into the city? Jesus, there's a reason we're in the suburbs of Bethany right now. It's a madhouse. Are you kidding me? Go into the city and watch this. And a man carrying a, 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 water, a jar of water will meet you. Okay, Jesus, there's like 2.5 million people here. Are you serious? Jesus, do you understand what you're asking me to do? But you asked the question, didn't you? Where shall we prepare the Passover? So they are leaving, and he says, a man will meet you. Guys, there could be no greater divine appointment when they're trying to figure all this out. Who carried the water back in the day? Ladies, it was you. With respect, guys, you were not strong enough, or you were not strong enough to handle that water the way a lady could without spilling it. Do you understand? But th there's a guy carrying water. That's unusual itself. So it shows Jesus had made prior reservations, but it also shows that Jesus, again, is in complete control. He shows with pinpoint accuracy how he micromanages the planet. And it shows that it's not unconnected. He's not disconnected from the world's affairs. Uh, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, who is a famous preacher of many days gone by, had a woman come up to him and say, I loved your sermon, Dr. Morgan. It was so awesome. God is such a big and awesome God. I have a question for you. Should I take the small things to God in prayer? And Dr. Morgan looked at her with a big smile and said, Woman, Everything in your life is little to God. Nothing is big compared to God. God ordains the end, but leads the steps that lead to the end. And the woman walked away and said, because her mind was blown. Friend, God is so transcendent. Our brother mentioned this this morning. God is so transcendent. Amy will put this up, that nothing is too big for him to control, and so personal, nothing is too small for him to care about. I mean, if you're one of these disciples... And you're, you're thinking about all these things. My master, I, I don't understand it all, but I know something's going down. They've threatened to kill him. He's talked about being killed. He wants us to go into this major city of Passover, and yet at the same time find a guy with a water jug on his head? Really? 
Guys, take everything you have to God. He's able, he's sufficient, and he's more than willing and able to answer your prayer. Church, take every concern of ours as a church, whatever that is, to our sovereign, sovereign God. How cool it is that we know that God listens and nothing is too big and he's that personal with us. That is who he is. God says he's sovereign over big things, little things, and all those in-between things. And I love it because that's what he is. But you notice that, that, again, that picture of water, he goes on, and uh, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's another requirement for us. If we're going to follow him, we must be unconditionally surrendered to him. We must do it all. We must always follow where he leads. And then he picks it up in verse 14. Jesus says, not only look for the man with the water jug, but he says in verse 14, and wherever he enters. So you're not just going to go say hi to him yet. You have to find him. And then you have to kind of scope, you have to case him like the police do on the spy movies. You have to case him and see which house he enters into. Well, my first question would be, well, Jesus, what if he's already entered the house? What if he's already entered the house and I don't see a guy with a jug? Then what do I do? I mean, come on. Some of y'all be asking these questions. Well, Jesus, what if plan A doesn't work and he's already entered the house and we have to go house to house in Jerusalem at the busiest time of the year? What do we do then, Jesus? But you notice they never ask those questions. They just simply take him at his word. But he says, go and ask the owner of the house when he enters in, where is my guest room? Do you see that trust here? Jesus is public enemy number one, yet someone opens their house to him. And the teacher says, where is my guest room? The disciples are going to ask that. This implies to us that this man whom they follow, the, the guy with the water on his head, into this guy's house, is a believer. That Jesus has impacted his life. That he's probably come to know Christ. Otherwise, why in the world would you have Jesus in your house if you don't love him? Because most people that day hate him with a passion. Or they will. So you go to a man you don't know and you say this? How presumptuous. But Jesus is clearly saying that this man is not only a believer, but he's a manager of it, and Jesus has made that clear. Amy, you can go ahead and put this up, but guys, what a great reminder to us. You are a steward of every moment, of every talent, of every gift, of every resource that God has given you, and may we choose wisely how we use it. Isn't it true that we are to live our lives with open hands? That everything we have and everyone we have in our lives really is all under God's providential care. You could walk outside today and slip on the, the rain-soaked thing and conk your head and we never hear from you again, as sad as that would be. You could get so excited when the Royals win their next World Series that you just pass over right there, or the Chiefs finally win a Super Bowl and you pass out right there and we never hear from you again. You live your life with an open hand, don't you? Training for a marathon currently, and, and John Moody, I think, a brother or someone here posted this, well, don't marathoners know that they don't have to run that far? Amen, John, that's right. That's both the draw and the tease of it all, isn't it? I could pass away on the treadmill tomorrow morning at 4 a.m. and never know it and end up in heaven. We don't know. We live our lives with open hands. But one thing we know is that this owner did not know all the things that would happen. He didn't know Jesus was going to be betrayed. He didn't know the Last Supper was coming. He didn't know the resurrection was coming necessarily, but he knew this. He had a house. Jesus asked for it, and he was more than willing to provide it. What has God called you to do to serve 
Christ in your community with? Is it your house? Is it your money? Is it your finances? Is it your time? Is it your resource? Your expertise? I don't know. But I do know this one thing. These disciples went on a goose chase looking for a man with a cup on his head, going in a house, and then they're not only going to follow that man, they're going to ask him a question, and this guy's going to oblige, just like that. Guys, you can't make this stuff up. Our God is a sovereign, in-control God, and he knows exactly everything. Choose wisely how you live your life. And he goes on there, and he tells them, you see in verse 14, he tells them very clearly in verse 14 that this is a place where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Jesus is never without a plan or what we should do. He's going to eat with his family unit. He's never at a loss. The disciples are his family in this case. They traveled together. They've ministered together. But it shows how close he is to his disciples. They had become his spiritual family. Remind yourself today that, guys, no matter how close you are to your physical family, no matter how close you are to those in your bloodline, that outside of Jesus Christ, you have no greater connection than the people who are in Jesus Christ. I've said it before, but it bears repeating, that if you have an Indian neighbor, someone from India, and you have a, uh, uh, oh, let's just pick on the Canadians today, you have a Canadian neighbor, which are you closer to as an American? Are you closer to the American across the street, or are you closer to the Indian man and the Canadian woman who know Jesus Christ? Which is it? Which is it? The one who knows Jesus Christ. This is why patriotism is a great thing, but we have to be very careful that we don't allow our country to supersede the greater habitants of a country we're going to, that is heaven, because guys, we have more in common with this Indian man and more in common with this Canadian woman than we have with the person who is unsaved across the street, who has a big flag on their truck and drives it around and honks everywhere they go. And I love our country, and I pray for those who serve and who serve with it. But remember, what Jesus says here is that his family was not necessarily his family. Do you remember what his family said about him? They said, Jesus, you're nuts, dude. Get out of here. Jesus, what have you drank today? Jesus, you're drunk. Go home. Jesus, you got problems. Remember back in Mark, they said that, those things, in other words? Do you know who your mother is, Jesus? Do you know what she did? And yet his closest family were his disciples because they were spiritually connected to him. That's why coming to church is so important, isn't it? Family is good. Spending time with family is good, and we should minister to those dudes. But guys, your closest family are the people in this room. In your context, God has called you right now. That may scare some of you because you come from very, very close families. But Jesus reminds us here that if he's sovereignly in control, then he sovereignly puts you right in this church where you need to serve and be and do for him, for his glory. Look at verse 15. Do you see again how in control he is? Look down at verse 15. He tells us what, he's go- what the disciples are going to say, uh, uh, what he's going to do. And the man, the, the owner of the house, will show you a large room furnished and ready there prepare for us. I love this. Shows us three things. Amy, if you want to just put these up all at one time, please. It shows us three things. It says that he's, he's going to weave our human need through his sovereignty. God chose these disciples to work, and there's a duty for us all. And we don't just get to sit back. Our responsibility is to pursue holiness and pray and walk in a Christ-like manner. But it shows us that God is totally in control of all the events surrounding his death. Love that. 
that the tree, you ever think about that? Do you ever trace that? The tree that Jesus died on was planted at some point, at some time, and sometime God cut down, some, used some guy or gal or group of people to cut down that tree and to somehow get it to Jerusalem and somehow make it into a beam and a, and a crossbar and all those things, and that's what our Lord died on, that even from that seed germinating, from beginning to end, God knew that Christ would die at the appointed times and by the appointed means. And it shows, secondly, that the plan shows that Jesus is well aware of everything that will soon transpire. He's not taken off guard. He's not unaware of the events. And isn't it a mercy of God that God doesn't allow us to see the future? I love Back to the Future. I, my, my uncle has a DeLorean in his garage. He's had it for years. It's it's it pristine shape. I love it. I've never gotten to driven, drive it. I always joke with him at Thanksgiving. I pray I'm in his will for it. But like someone, we, we, don't, we want to go in the future, make a time machine. If I could just see what was ahead of me. Well, Jesus saw what was ahead of him, and he still stayed faithful through the task. If we saw what was ahead of us at times, guys, I, I, I fail to think of what would happen. If I was a soldier on June, uh, early parts of June of 1944, and I knew what was ahead of me at Normandy Beach, I would fake sickness to do everything because I am a, a coward at heart of such things. If we knew what's ahead of us in all things, we would be very, very interrupted to go forward with what is there. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. And what comfort there is that nothing out there tomorrow is not the perfect plan when I arrive there because God has already seen it. And finally, the plan shows us we must be totally surrendered to what God has for us. All right. God is sovereign over our questions. He's sovereign over our quandaries. And the last thing is this. He's sovereign over our quest. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You've asked the question in real faith, where are we going to take over the Passover? And then Jesus goes, sends you on what you might see as a goose hunt, what you might see as a scavenger hunt, what you might see as totally out of bounds. Jesus, you're nuts. I believe you. I've seen you do some things, but not even this one do I believe. Okay, Peter and John, what are you going to do? Look at verse 16. He tells you very clearly what they did. And the disciples set out. The disciples set out, don't let that pass over, guys. The disciples set out, this is an immediate obedience. This is immediate obedience, not a question, like I've kind of said, third party, the objecting voice, not, not a, Jesus, if we, have you considered this idea, or the experts over here, Jesus, say, if you do this five, whatever, the disciples went out. They followed in faith. They did what he asked them to do. These disciples had done it immediately. The word is not in the text, but you know this is Mark's favorite word. We've been in it for two years. That immediately the disciples set out and went into the city. Immediately, guys, they went out. Delayed obedience is disobedience. We must respond the same way. But notice the exact obedience that happened here. Not only did they follow immediately, they followed exactly. You see that there in, in the next part of the verse. It says in verse 16, they went into the city and they found it just as he told them. Just as he told them. They came into the city. They didn't try and go to another outskirt village. They didn't try and go pop their own tent. They didn't pull their RV over and say, Jesus, we're, we're camping out in here. They went in and did exactly what he said to do. That is faith. That is trust in a sovereign God. They had to go to the right place to be in the will of God. And the will of God was go to Jerusalem because we serve a very precise God. 
well, God, I know you told me to do this in your word, but, but can I just take that, can I throttle that back to 90% instead of 100%? You'll be okay with that, right? It's not the obedience we see here. And finally, we'll close with this, the complete obedience that they follow with. Did you see that? They found it just as he told them, and they prepared it. Love that. The endurance and perseverance of going into the city, of finding this man with a jug on his head, finding what house he goes into, having the, the courage to ask the, the owner of the house, this is what the teacher says, all those things they went and did, and they went all the way. They found it just as he told them. The master deserves our best, and the assignment that he gave to us is enough. But I want you to remember, and Pastor Nelson wrote this out, and I think it's very good for us to remember. Remember not only the faith of the disciples, but remember the faith of the host to provide. Remember the faith of the servant of the disciples they followed to find the host. If we are faithful in a little, Pastor Nelson reminded me over email this week or Facebook, then he will take care of the rest. Is that not true in our lives? The more we're faithful to follow what God has, the more faithful He brings us to the place we need to be. If we're unfaithful where we are now, we'll be taking the same course again and again until we come to the immediate, exact, and complete obedience He has called us to. Church, I I thought about how this applies to our church very much, and there are things as we pray through bylaws, and we pray through structure, and we pray through those things, and outreach, and what to do with certain parts of the building, and you come at four if you're able today as we talk informally outside of a business meeting about this with your feedback. But how are we to have immediate obedience in our church? What has God called us to immediately right here, right now, in this time to be faithful with as you as a church member and us as a church? What about the exact obedience? Have we followed exactly what God has called us to do? Have we done everything that he's asked us to do, no more, no less, exactly as he said? Have we, have we done it completely? Have we trusted that as we do it, even though it may seem weird, even though it may seem off the cuff, even though the, the experts say do it another way, perhaps that's what God has called us to because he takes the foolishness of the world and confounds the wise. Friend, I don't know what it is in your life today, but as I read through this passage, I said, you know what, this you need to be reminded of this because you have questions in your life, even at different ages. Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to see? What do you want me to do? You, have a, you don't have trouble in your life, do you? Surely not. You're the, you're the Sunday morning crowd, right? You don't have any trouble in your life. It's all great. It's all perfect, right? Don, that grass never grows higher than where you mowed it last week, right? It just stays the same for you all the time, I'm sure. I'm being sarcastic. Of course you have trouble. Of course the grass grows. Of course we have faithful brother who mows it every week. But friends, in the midst of that, God is with us. He's sovereign over everything. And before these disciples get into the hardest days of their lives, Jesus had to remind them, I'm he. I got this. I got your back. Don't worry about it. Take heart. Whatever surprises you, whatever comes at you, I've got you. And friend, he says the same word to you today. He is faithful, he's loving, he is so good. Let's pray together as we close out this morning. Father, 